Hello and welcome to Better at Work, the podcast that will inspire you to achieve betterness in your working life. Discover how to navigate the pitfalls, challenges and work jerkery that may be getting in your way. Learn how simple changes, being authentic and even using humor can be game changing. I'm your host, Carl Quinlan. I've spent 20 years helping people and global organizations to be better. And now I'm here to share my practical tips and real life stories with you, as well as insights from my conversations with some incredible people. So join me as we explore how we can all be better at work. Because when work is better, life is better. Hello and welcome to Better at Work. On this episode, I'm joined by the legend that is Chester Elton. For the best part of two decades, Chester has devoted his life to helping create workplaces where employees feel engaged, enabled and energized. In his inspiring and always entertaining speeches, the number one best-selling author, provides real solutions to leaders looking to manage change, drive innovation and lead multi-generational workforces. Chester's work is supported by research with more than one million working adults. Even I didn't believe that, but it's true. Revealing the proven secrets behind high performance cultures and teams. Now, I love this. Chester has been called the Apostle of Appreciation by Canada's Globe and Mail, Creative and Refreshing by The New York Times and a must read for modern managers by CNN. He is co-author of multiple award winning books, including All In, The Carrot Principle, Leading with Gratitude and my recent favorite, Anxiety at Work, which we'll talk about today. In 2021, Global Gurus ranked him as number four in the world's top leadership experts and number three in the world's top organizational culture experts. And he's a member of Marshall Goldsmith's 100 Coaches Pay It Forward project. Chester also serves as a leadership consultant and coach to firms such as American Express, AT&T and Procter & Gamble. Plus, I know he's high energy just as much as myself. So I think this will be a fun chat. Chester. Welcome to Better at Work. Uh, You know what? I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation. We're delighted to have you. We kick off every conversation, Chester, with where did this all start for you? Why did you become so interested in helping create better workplaces? You know, Adrian Gossick is my co-author, and we've been writing now, as as you mentioned, for 22 years. we, We laugh about that. Most marriages don't last 22 years, you know. We both had the experience of having fabulous jobs where, you know, you'd come home, you'd be energized and that would ripple through your family and your neighborhood. And and we've also had those jobs where, you know, when the alarm clock went off, the last thing in the world you wanted to do was drag yourself out of bed and go to work. And it's just really not fair. We spend so much of our lives at work. And as as we took a really deep dive into what are the elements of of a great culture? What are the elements and, and characteristics of really great leaders and and high performance teams, it wasn't that hard to create a great place to work. It really wasn't, you know. And I'll tell you, the the common thread that we found through all of those was gratitude. If you just learned and had the discipline to to express simple gratitude every day, thanking people for showing up and working hard and and, uh, not worrying about being the smartest guy in the room and on and on. And you've, you know, all these things as well. But so we said, well, look, let's, let's figure out what are the elements and, uh, and can we help create better leaders, better cultures, better teams. And uh, Anxiety at Work is our 14th book together. We've, we've enjoyed the journey 
immensely. And uh, yeah, who'd, who'd have thunk it, right? Like, I go to my high school reunions wow. and they go, you've, you've written 14 books? Like I was in your English class. You know, I, I don't recall you being <laughs> the New York Times bestselling author. Like in your in, in my uh, you know high school yearbook, no one said, and you will write a New York Times bestselling book, you know. And then, and then I explained to them very quickly that Adrian is the writer. <laughs> and they go, oh, oh, okay, well, that, you know, that makes perfect sense. No, I tell you, the books are fantastic. But let's kick off there, Chester, with anxiety, which seems to be increasing so much. People are anxious about the cost of living, losing their job, anxiety around working from home, not being seen in the office for promotions, anxiety over the need to always be on. I better be seen. Can you tell us what you're currently seeing in relation to anxiety in the workplace? They're just a few of what I'm hearing and seeing, but what, what are you seeing? Yeah, you know, in the in the book, as you know, we go through eight strategies on how to manage anxiety in the workplace. And, and the number one cause of anxiety is uncertainty. And all those things you listed have uncertainty attached to it, you know. Really, as we as we talk to people and leaders in particular, and we say, look, if you want to tamp down anxiety, over-communicate. People are anxious because they're not sure if they're doing well, if the company's doing well. I was just on a, a video call this morning with a company that's going through a merger and it was a 60-40 merger. So the 60 is, you know, absorbing the 40. And if if you're in the 60, you're feeling pretty good about things. But if you're in the 40, not so much, <laughs> you know. And so this idea of of saying, look, here's what's going on. We help leaders say, look, if you think you're over-communicating, it's probably about right. As you're touching base with your people and certainly during times of uncertainty or unrest or mergers or acquisitions, make sure you're checking in often. Some will need it once a week. Some will need it once an hour. You know, figure out what the cadence is and answer for them on a regular basis these questions. Let them know how the company's doing. Let them know where the company's going. You know, what does the future look like? Let them know how they're doing and let them know what their future in the company looks like. You you answer those four questions on a regular basis. I, I always uh, say, look, when, when there is a communication void, voids get filled. They get filled. And they get and, and a communication void gets filled with fear, rumor, and innuendo. And none of those are productive. <laughs> none of them. So how's the company doing? Where are we going? How are you doing? Where, what's your future look like here? Boy, if you answer those questions in all this time of uncertainty, anxiety goes down, productivity goes up. By the way, when anxiety goes down, you know what else goes up? Trust. Trust goes up. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think when you don't communicate with people, you do lose a bit of trust. It's interesting you said about communication there. During COVID, I saw some companies talk to their teams practically every day. And then I know, and I worked at somewhere where the communication wasn't as strong. And you're right. People fill the void. They go, what's happening? What's going on? Do you think do we need to be worried? But even worried about... COVID more than maybe they needed to be or because I think people go, what's going on? What are they not telling us? <laughs> well, you know what? And I'll tell you three of the most important words that a leader can say to his team is like, I don't know. I don't know. I'll find out. And as soon as I know, you'll know. And you know what? That's okay. It's not as reassuring as I know exactly what's going on and, and here's what it is. It does uh, show some vulnerability and say, like, I don't always have all the answers. There are going to be times when I don't know. Because I also say to leaders in my team, I don't know if you found this, but I feel you can actually tell your teams 80% of what's going on. There might be 20% that you, you can't tell them. And I have found in my experience, the more you tell them, the more they come on the journey with you. 
the more they feel like they're part of it all. Our work around culture has all been around engagement and, you know, all, all that good stuff. And how do you engage your employees? Well, their voices are heard. You know, my opinion matters. You know, I, I can speak up a meeting that wonderful work that was done by Amy Edmondson at the Harvard School of Business on psychological safety. It's getting more and more play and, and more and more practiced. And we, we owe her a debt of gratitude. I think when it comes to anxiety in the workplace, you need to raise the bar a little bit there and go to emotional safety. Mm -hmm. Psychological safety is great as far as look uh, the work and, and what we're doing and how we're ideating and innovating. But when it comes to anxiety, boy, there's still a huge stigma attached to that. You need to feel emotionally safe. I think it's important to share that, you know, pre-pandemic, about one in five, 20% of employees felt like they had some kind of anxiety disorder. You get to January of 2022 and it's 30%. That's a big number. Workers in their 20s, it's 42%. 42%. And, you know, 50% of millennials and 75% of Gen Z have left a job due to anxiety at work. And we're all in a war for talent. We all want to keep our very best. And I will tell you something, your top performers, probably your most anxious. Oh my God. We're going to come to that. Oh, I've been there. They'll never say no. They'll stay up all night. Uh, I was at a yes. conference recently and you, you love this, Kahal, that, you know, I said, uh, how many of you got somebody on your team that's just killing it? They all raised their hands. And I said, and what do you do with those people on your team? You load them up. <laughs> you can't give yeah. you can't yeah. give them too much, and they'll never say no. And that's the biggest danger. It's by far the biggest danger. Yeah, I've got a question on that because you you share a great story in the book of the lady Chloe. So we're going to come to Chloe because I I thought that was a fantastic example. And you know, it's interesting you say that about the top performers. I found at another level as well. Sometimes you spend even more time with the maybe ones that need more development. Because, you know, you, you do want to progress them, et cetera. You almost go to the top performers, go, I need to give you more because I need to help Tony and Bridget and Claire. And I think that's a, something to be mindful of as well. But I, I love what you're saying there. Now, anxiety at work. Let's give it its full title. Anxiety at work, eight strategies to help teams build resilience, handle uncertainty and get stuff done. You co-wrote this with Adrian Gostick and also with Anthony Gostick. And I know that that's Adrian's son. And I know he's courageously dealt with anxiety himself. Would you mind maybe just telling us a little bit more of this personal connection to anxiety for you, for you both? Absolutely. In fact, the reason we wrote the book was because of Anthony. Yeah, I've known Anthony since he's six years old and he's, uh, you know, your classic millennial. He's super smart. He's super connected and he's super anxious. <laughs> you know, just, he just finished getting uh, like uh, some kind of a double master's or something from USC and Adrian and I laugh. He's taking courses that we have no chance at pronouncing, let alone spelling. I mean, it's, it's, it's like reading Irish names, you know. It, it's so interesting that he approached <laughs> us and he said, you know, you guys talk about culture and leadership all the time and building great teams. Do you ever talk about mental health? Do you ever talk about anxiety? And we went, no, 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 absolutely. Like, absolutely not. Like, why would you ever talk about that? My generation is, you know, rub some dirt on it, get back in the game. I mean, suck it up, you know, turn that frown upside down. We play sports and somebody get knocked out and we all laughed. <laughs> you know, he said, look, you guys will never talk about it. You oldies, he called us. He said, you've got to understand that my generation, we start every conversation by saying, how are you doing? And what we mean by that is, how's your mental health? 
And so, you know, we went from the classic Disney, you know, we don't talk about Bruno, to looking at the numbers and really embracing it. And he makes a great point. How can you have a great team? How can you have a great culture if probably the number one issue in the workplace right now post-pandemic is mental health, if you're not making that safe to talk about? And so we came up with those, you know, the causes and strategies behind it. The first one we talked about, uncertainty. And, you know, you talk about your high performers. We have a wonderful chapter on perfectionism. You know, the old adage that perfect is the enemy of just getting stuff done, which is why in the title is, and by the way, get stuff done. You know, we say, look, we've got tremendous mental health on our team. We're going into business. Uh, The thing is, we've got tremendous mental health that doesn't doesn't work. Not only is it the right thing to do, is it the kind thing to do? Is it the generous thing to do? It's the right thing to do for your business to up productivity. And, you know, we often laugh and think about it. 42% of workers in their 20s have some kind of disorder. Well, if 42% of your workers in their 20s showed up with a broken leg, you'd say, hey, we got a problem. <laughs> we we got to figure yeah. that out. You know, the thing is with mental health, because this there's this stigma, because it's not as obvious as a cast or a brace on a leg. We kind of go, huh. And workers are terrified. They're worried that HR are going to put a note down about you and it's like you won't get a promotion. Here's your your quiz. See if you remember this from the book. What percent of employees feel safe talking to their manager about mental health? I think it was like, was it 10 or 15 or something? It was really low. 10%. You got it. You nailed it. Yeah, 10%. So, you know, turn that the other way, right? See, I read that book. Yeah, <laughs> he did. 90% <laughs> won't talk about it. Why? Because of the stigma, because of the fear. I won't get promoted. I won't get the raise. I'll be perceived as weak. Can't take it. Can't take the pressure. I mean, you worked at Goldman. I have a son that works at Goldman in Dallas. I mean, you got to show up every day. 12-hour days are kind of the norm. Don't you dare tell me that you need a uh, mental health day. Well, I do have a question in relation to my time at Goldman Sachs as well. But yeah, I mean, I think those kind of organizations, they do expect a lot. It's high performance, culture. I think they've gotten better at understanding this challenge, but I think there's still more work to do. I think the thing we're seeing here in Australia and even across the globe is a sad thing with younger people committing suicide because of their work, which I just think is absolutely terrible. There's been a few cases across the globe. And I think that's where organizations, all organizations need to be really thinking about this more and more. No question. It it doesn't just manifest itself in lower productivity and absenteeism and so on. Yeah, you can get to that space. And by the way, you know, with the perfectionists in particular, our identity so often is so tightly tied to our job that if we're failing at our job, we interpret that as failing in life. And if I'm failing in life and I'm letting down my family, I'm letting down my kid. I mean, you can see the spiral. The lovely Brene Brown has written a lot on this. And we use a a quote from her where she talks about the difference between sympathy and empathy. Often in the workplace, we'll say, well, I'm very sympathetic to my employees. And And you know what? That doesn't help at all. Sympathy is, oh, you poor thing. Boy, it it stinks to be you. The difference is, is you can say, look, I don't know exactly what you're going through. I have felt like that before. Let's sort this out. Because, you know, what happens when you start going down that spiral and it it can lead to self-harm, which is beyond tragic, right? They go off by themselves. And and this is where we talk about in the book to, to have an ally, somebody that you can talk to. When you've got an ally, when you've got a confident, a mentor, you know, whatever role that is played in your in your work life and your personal life, somebody that you can call up and just say, hey, I'm in a bad place. 
uh, I need help. Mm. And that's another thing, you know, that high performers are very, very hesitant to do. A lot of leaders ask for help. I don't know if you're familiar. Are you familiar with the children's book? I've got it up on my shelf up here. The Mole, the Fox and the Horse. Yes, I am. I, don't you love that book? So a little boy goes into the into the wild and he's afraid and he befriends this wise old mole and they free a fox from the snare and then they befriend this giant, big, gentle horse and they go through the storms and so on. And, and the little boy is exhausted and he's laying on the back of the horse and he says, what's the bravest thing you've ever said? And the horse says, help. And then the next page, which is, and the, and the artwork is so lovely. And, and the horse says, you know, asking for help isn't giving up. It's refusing to give up. That is such a powerful message. And I think as well, it's great if you want to bring up kids that are kind. Yeah, that's in the book. The, the mole asks the boy, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the little boy says, kind. Now that's a noble goal. No, I love the way you, you weave that in there because you, you're so right. I think when people are at their lowest, they don't often ask for help. I moved to New York and six days later, my father died suddenly. And I was on the plane going back to Ireland and my grandmother died. So my mother lost both her husband and her mother within 24 hours. And I had just started a new job at Goldman Sachs in New York six days before. And I found that a really tough period because I didn't ask for help from anyone. And I was in really sad and down, but I had a new job and I had to look like I was doing a good job. Right. And I remember going to talk to this lady. They had an amazing psychologist at the company and I'd never gone to see a psychologist, Chester. I went down to see her and she was an amazing woman. I think it comes to the perfectionism and everything. She was saying, why don't you just take some time out? And I was like, I can't, I just can't, I can't tell, I don't want anyone to think I'm not coping. If they sense here that I'm not as into this job, I'm not going to get promoted next year. I'm not going to, I had all these stories in my head. And she actually said to me, she goes, why do you care about what all these other people think? You need to look after yourself. You need to take a break. You need to take some time out. And honestly, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have taken the time out. And I was not feeling well. You know, it, it is so funny when you put it in that perspective, isn't it? We're, we're so worried about impressing people that we don't really know, many that we don't even like that much. <laughs> Why are we so worried about impressing these people that don't give us a second thought? I, I've got a no. dear friend. He's a senior executive at a, a big firm. They, they're very careful with their brand, so I'll keep it a little nebulous. He said, you know, when it comes to mental health, and he's, he's just he has a wonderful heart this way, he builds wonderful teams. He said, you know, there are times when you just need to take that time. And he said, you know what? Whether you're here or whether you're not here, the work gets done. We figure it out. The work gets done. One of us is going to need to take some time, and you'll yeah. be the one that gets the work done. So take care of yourself. Get it right. Don't worry about us. And I thought, boy, you know, who doesn't want to work for that guy? Yeah, it, it goes such a long way. You know, I remember the people during that time myself that were very kind, but I was still going, I'm fine. Right. Don't I'm worry. insulted that you would even ask. What do you think that, you, you know what I mean? That, that you, you don't think I'm okay? What, you don't think I can handle this? A death in the family? People die every day. You know, I mean, we just get stupid yeah. about it, right? We get so stupid. And, you know, you do remember the people that help you during that time or even the things people say. I remember my uncle's wife saying to me, you know, you're only a number in these places. Right. 
was a good leveler in a way. <laughs> you know, Kahal, uh, I'll tell you, I, I was in a job that I loved for years and years and years. And then it, it, it started to go sideways. There was a change in leadership and a change in tone and culture and so on. And no matter how hard I worked and no matter how productive we were, it, was, it just never felt like it was enough. And it was my wife that pulled me aside. And she said, and you'll, you'll use this, she said, you know, I know you love the company. You've got to understand something, Chess. A company can't love you back. A company can't love you back. And I know that you will you you bleed for these folks. And then she said, you need to quit your job. I don't know what we're going to do going forward. I just know this. We're not doing this anymore. I want my husband back. And, you know, that's when you know you've married well. You married really well. And you quit? Yeah, in fairly short order. We, we worked it out within a, within a few weeks, actually. Uh, it was very traumatic. You learn a lot in those moments, though, don't you, Chester? Yes. And, and, and again, having a confidant and somebody that you trust and you care about. And, you know, we, we're going to celebrate 40 years of marital bliss next year. So I think your wife supporting you and having someone like that in that moment is, is fantastic. I had a similar situation where I wanted to leave, very traumatic as well. And I said to my partner, but I'm still so ambitious for my career. And what was said back to me was really important. He said to me, you should be ambitious for your life, not your career. I'm going to give a plug for a book written by a friend of mine that is right up this alley. And her name is Aisha Bursell. She's this fabulous designer. It just came out today, actually. A step-by-step guide to love, purpose, well-being, and friendship. We've become dear friends. In fact, I'm going to have dinner with her tomorrow night in, in New York City. It is so interesting. You know you know this from Goldman Sachs. You say people will spend more time planning and designing a holiday than they do their finances, right? And we will spend much more time worrying about our careers than we actually do our lives. And she has this wonderful way of, you know, as a designer, you you take a product and then you deconstruct it and then you reconstruct it into the way you, you'd like it to be. It's a wonderful process to go through because we, we take a look at our lives and we say, okay, well, what's missing? What's important? Like we say family is important. Okay, how much time are we actually spending with our family? Mm. We say that, you know, our spirituality, our faith is important. Well, how much time do we spend reading our scriptures or meditating or being of service? We say, my community is really important. So, well, when was the last time you did any community service? And it has to be intentional and it has to be by design. Well, I'm glad you plugged her book because it keeps coming up on my LinkedIn today. And I'm like, I've never heard of this lady before, but I'm getting that book too myself, particularly if you've given a recommendation to Chester. Yeah, no, I've, I've gone through her now, workshops three times. You write your own manifesto. You really take a step back and you think about who are your heroes. Listen, I, I give Aisha credit for changing my family because we went through that design. Wow. And I said, and she said, well, your family's so important. So what are some of the rituals that you have in your family? Well, it, it caused us that we ended up, we purchased a, a small little lake house in upstate New York. Every year, the first week in August, we all meet up at the lake house. I mean, it's our family ritual. We would not have done that had we not taken that course with Aisha. And it has been an absolute game changer. The memories, the connections, the family stories would have not been there um, had it not been for Aisha. I love that. And you know what? Here you are being the apostle again, grateful to others. And it's lovely to hear. And I, I'm definitely going to get that book and maybe she'll come on our podcast. We'd love to love to hear her. Let's Get back to your amazing book as well, Anxiety at Work. Now, you delineate in the book between worry, stress and anxiety. 
And that was really good learning for me. Would you mind just sharing briefly a little bit about why you did that or what what you see as the difference between the three? Yeah, you know, a great question because, you know, often we use those words interchangeably. I'm anxious, I'm stressed out. Those are two different things. You know, we had um, a guest on our podcast, uh, Anxiety at Work, which I hope people will, will, will sample as well, said, you know, depression is I'm worried about the past. Anxiety is I'm worried about the future. So one of the remedies for that is to try to be in the present, control what you can control as, as much as possible. Now, stress is hopefully momentary. Well, that's episodic. It's kind of like, hey, I've got a deadline. I've got a presentation I've got to make. And I'm, I'm stressed about that. It comes and it goes. Now, we all know that if, if stress is prolonged, then that leads to really serious mental health. And so often, you know, the, the, the myth is, well, put the fear of God in them and they'll produce. And you go, yeah, that is true. Short term. Boy, do it long term. And that's when, you know, people uh, come back to work and do horrible things to each other. So the stress hopefully is short term. Worry is that worry. I'm worried about the past. I'm anxious about the future. You've got to destigmatize, you know, and, you've, and that's where we really encourage leaders to say, look, I've gone through this. If they can be a little bit vulnerable and tell their story, it makes it safe. A, a dear friend of mine, Nabila Extalaban, she's the uh, chief people officer for Walmart in Canada. So 100,000 employees. She's very much an advocate of mental health. And she says, I will open every town hall. As I introduce myself, I say, I'm a recovering workaholic. She talks about her life, you know, at Starbucks. And I think she was at like Lego and now Walmart, these, these big iconic brands. She said, I, I would regularly work 80, 90 hour weeks. It cost me my health. It cost me my mental health. It cost me my marriage. I want you to know that if you're in that situation, take some time. It's safe. Well, she got some pushback. And I love this story that she tells. She said, and then I got some pushback. And one of the employees said, well, easy for you to say now. You're the chief people officer at Walmart. Would you have ever gotten that far had you not making those, made those sacrifices? And I loved her answer. She said, absolutely. It would have taken me longer. And knowing what I know now, I would make that trade. And fair play to her to answer that question so honestly, you know, that's all people want. Yeah, they just want you to be sincere. Exactly. Now, we touched a minute ago on Chloe, and I love this super hardworking lady in the in the book and she was in an investment bank so I saw a lot of my own self in Chloe would you mind sharing a little bit about Chloe because I thought it was a great story to include yeah you know i mean this the story of chloe is the story of of many of us right you've been promoted and you've moved away and you're in a town that you're not familiar with and you're trying to make friends and yet your identity is your job and then you just kind of vaporize i mean it just disappears we had an expression for it. You, you just blink out, you know, and say, hey, where's Chloe? <laughs> well, it just got to the point where it was easier for her to just disappear and go home or go wherever and reinvent herself than it was to sit down and have that conversation. Remember, 90% of employees will not feel safe. And so it was easier for her to just say, you know what? I'm, uh, I'm done. I'm done. And not give an explanation. And she just walked out the door, she did. didn't she? And, and not give an explanation yeah. because giving the explanation is more painful than just leaving. Now, you, you can see why now we talk about, you know, have an ally, have a mentor, check in, have somebody that you can confide in, a, a mentor, a guide. And ideally, it's your manager or a coworker. You know, we did a wonderful, found a wonderful study actually on firefighters and firehouses. And the study was done, and this was around finding an ally. The firehouses that had the best response times and saved the most lives 
one of the indicators that they had a good culture, that they trusted each other, that it was safe is they ate together. You know, they would oh, eat wow. breakfast, they would eat dinner, you know, and you, you see the, you know, the firehouse movies and the, 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 the cook is always the most important guy in the firehouse, right? <laughs> the firehouse chili and, and, and all that. He said, if we went into a firehouse where they went off and ate by themselves, we knew there were, there were big problems. So, you know, take a lesson from that. How are you creating moments where you can get together? I think eating and sharing a meal is, is, is a sacred moment. I'm very spiritual about that. And, and don't pass up that opportunity to bring in, you know, uh, cookies or donuts or, or have a team lunch or a one-on-one -on -one lunch and just say, Hey, are you doing anything right now? I'm going to, I found this new place. Yeah. Let's just go and, and just talk about life. I'm a big fan of those too. I mean, you know, in, in, you know, the company I worked with here in Australia, we used to do morning teas and they were just great. People have that little moment together and sometimes they actually solve work problems together. And you talked about ally networks there or having an ally at work. We talked about Goldman Sachs there. Like, I mean, it's 10 years since I worked there, but my God, they had an amazing ally network for all different people, you know, for gay people, all different types of networks. And I actually think it really helped those more marginalized groups. And I just thought it was fantastic. And when I went to other companies, they didn't have this ally network. And I was like, where is it? Why don't we have this? It's just so good. And it's so simple, you know, people will do it for free. It's all volunteer. You know, they're passionate about it. Dory Clark, we quote in the book on allyship, you know, she's this wonderful professor down there in uh, Duke University. And she talks about we've all felt like the other at some point. We're the only one where maybe English was our second language or we're Muslim and mm -hmm. I've got to find a place to pray or I'm the only woman on the team. Or I, I love when we talk about diversity in the workplace. There's a, a, a wonderful author you should spend some time with, uh, Arthur Brooks. Oh, yes. Arthur Brooks. Yeah, he's uh, he's just brilliant. And he says, you know, I, I, I encourage companies, well, where, where are the gray hairs? Or, or in my case, the no hairs that have kind of been around the block. There's a little wisdom in the room. You know, he says, I do a lot with Silicon Valley companies and everybody's in their 20s. And you go, look, that's great. And mm -hmm. you've got a lot of energy and you've got a lot of ideas and stuff. But there's value in having a couple of gray hairs, you know, that, that show up and say, I know you think that's a great idea. But from the beginning of time, it's been a bad idea. <laughs> you know, I know you, think, I know you think that this time it'll be different. Trust me, it's, yeah. it's not. Yeah. You know, sometimes you do need those people who've been around. You know, I've, I've worked in some companies where they haven't invested in their technology for a long time. And then you get someone new coming in and they go, we want to get rid of all these. We want a fresh new people in the team. And then suddenly you find out, well, actually, those people that have been around for a while actually know how these crickety old systems work. And if we want to build new ones, we kind of need to know how they're working. One big question I have is, I think a lot of stress for people in organizations is you know, organizations pushing too much and leaders not acting as the traffic cop. I, I actually think the leaders at senior levels and all le levels should act as the traffic cop and, you know, stopping work, prioritizing it, etc. What do you say to companies who push a lot of priorities? What's some of the advice you give them? Well, exactly what you said. Look, uh, look at the team and see what the workload distribution is. And make sure you're not overloading uh, people and you get the team to speak up, make it safe for the team to speak up. Because, you know, I, I love when you talk to companies, whether it's their values or their priorities, and you say, what are your values? And they say, we've got 12 core values. And say, You've got no core values, you know, and nobody can remember 12. Moses only had 10 and people can't <laughs> list those either. And they say, well, what are your priorities? Well, we've got 20 key priorities. Well, no, you don't. And that's overwhelming. So say, look, these are the three things we got to get done. 
let's get those done and then we'll move to the next three and the next three. I'm a big fan of the rule of three. I think you can remember three things. Chester, we are all about being better at work. Some final quick questions for you. What do you think is the smallest thing someone could do to have a better day at work tomorrow? You know, I think the way you start your day and the way you end your day is is really important. I'm a big fan of discipline and ritual. I developed a little mantra thanks to Think Like a Monk by Jay Shetty. He said, write, write your own mantra, your, your Buddhist mantra. And, and mine is be kind, be grateful and be of service. And I think if you start your day in an attitude where you want to be grateful and you're going to be kind, it, it gets your day off to a better start. My wife and I have a wonderful end of the day ritual. And we say, what are three things you're grateful for today? And you share it. And, you know, it's often many more than I encourage you to do with your partner. It's, it's, it's just a lovely way to end the day. And there's often many more than three. We get all caught up in our jobs and our how we're perceived and so on. And you step back and people that are listening to this podcast, I guarantee you that 99% of the world would trade places with you in a nanosecond. You're not worried about stepping out of your front door and getting shot. You've got clean water. You've got enough food. You've got clothes on your back. You've got good friends. You've got people that care about you. I mean, never lose sight of the fact that those are incredible blessings in your life. And you should be grateful for that and, and let them know. The other thing I would really encourage you to do is random acts of kindness. I get up in the morning and I'm the apostle of appreciation. So I'm I'm a little crazy when it comes to this stuff, but I've got literally 30 people that I text in the morning with a little phrase, a little bit of encouragement, the same sort of thing to all three. And then they kind of personalize like, you know what? You say 30 people, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It takes me 15 minutes and it puts me in such a, a state of gratitude. And of course, the things that come back, The other thing, we talked a little bit about it, and I know it's going to be the hardest thing Mm -hmm. that you'll hear is don't be afraid to ask for help. You know, I'll ask friends, I say, well, you know, I'm the giver. I'm the giver. And I say, great. Somebody asks you for help and you give them that help. How does that make you feel? Say, oh, I feel great. great. Why would you deny someone the opportunity to serve you and feel the way you feel? And they go, ah, you're right. Ask for help. Let people serve you. It's it's a gift. It's a gift to, to let people serve. So Start the day with some kind of mantra. Yeah. I love that, Chester. And have you ever learned anything through work that has, or experienced through work that has unexpectedly made your whole life better? Oh, yes. You know, uh, our book, Leading with Gratitude, which we wrote right before uh, Anxiety at Work, is the ripple effect of gratitude. When I leave work and I'm happy, it ripples through my family, my community, and so on. And yes, I mean, uh, the thing that I go to immediately are the friendships that I've made at work that have been life-changing. I met Aisha Bursell through work. I never would have met Aisha uh, otherwise. I mean, we literally have nothing in common <laughs> other than the fact that we've both written written books, right? She grew up in, in Istanbul, right? She, uh, you know, learned to speak English in France. She's Turkish, but has this delightful French accent when she speaks. It's very disconcerting. And we've become dear, dear, dear friends. Never would have happened if not for work. So I think the biggest thing that I take away are relationships. Absolutely, are, are the relationships. I love it. And our final question that we ask all of our guests on this show, Chester, is can you recall the best advice you personally were ever given that has made you better at work? I think that is a brilliant question. Uh, and yes, when Adrian and I decided we would leave this comfortable job that we had that paid us very well with a tremendous amount of security and go off on our own and form our own little company, you know, the culture works, I was talking to a dear friend and I was just so stressed out because now there wasn't a regular paycheck. It was, you know, eat what you kill. And he stopped me and he said, hey, wait a minute. Are you forgetting who you are? I said, what what are you talking about? He says, you're Chester Elton. I mean, 
I don't know if you know this, but that's kind of a big deal. <laughs> you know, he said, don't forget who you are. And he said, I want you to write this down. This is a little indiscreet. He says, you got a pencil? He says, we were at a diner in New Jersey. The place is lousy with diners. He said, I want you to write this down. I am Chester F. and Elton. Don't you ever forget it. <laughs> now, along with, along with that, the, the second bit of advice that I think happened the same day was from another dear friend. He said, Chester, you're stressing out about this too much. Remember who you are. You and Adrian are a great team. You're incredibly talented. Stop and enjoy the journey. And that was a great piece of advice. Enjoy the journey. You're so eager to get to the destination. You're not enjoying the journey. And all these wonderful people that you're going to meet along the way and the wonderful books and the publishers and, and the conferences you get to speak at. That's why I love at the end of the day to stop and say to my wife, what are three things you're grateful for? Enjoy the journey and don't forget who you are. I love, love that. Such great advice. Chester, thank you so much for coming on the show. For more information on Chester and his fantastic book, go to anxietyatworkbook.com. Plus, do follow him on LinkedIn. He shares some great stuff this morning. He shared how he was appreciating his delivery men, which I <laughs> I was living for. And of course, his amazing gratitude journal newsletter. And if that's not enough, as Chester mentioned, he also has a fantastic podcast called Anxiety at Work to help you reduce stress, handle uncertainty and increase your mental wellness. And it's really practical and you'll get so much from it. Chester, Thank you so much. We've loved having you on the show. It's been a delight. Absolutely a delight. And by the way, the, the, the one website is just go to thecultureworks.com. That'll be easier for you to find everything. Thecultureworks.com. Thecultureworks.com. And, you know, it, just in parting, uh, you know, gratitude is such an important part of mental health, of building great teams. And I always like to end by, by saying two things. By the way, it's a better way to lead. It's a better way to live. And it, the reason it's a better way to live is because you've got all these wonderful principles about leadership at work. Don't leave it at work. Take it home. You know, when was the last time you expressed the real concern and gratitude for the people that are the most important people in your lives? You know, your your partner, your spouse, your kids, your neighbors. Trust me, it's, it's what your mom taught you when you were five years old. It's always better to give than, than to receive because when you give, you always receive. And thank you so much for this invitation. I've, I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. What a lovely way to end at this time of year. Fantastic. Thank you, Chester. I hope we get you on at another point in the future. Welcome to Let's Take This Offline. Annette, welcome to Let's Take This Offline. So lovely to see you. What did you think of the amazing Chester? Kahal, you know, I love Chester Elton and the Anxiety at Work book. So many insights and a big challenge to narrow it down to three key takeaways. I suppose for me, Kahal, the first one was this trend of increasing anxiety at work. I'm really surprised by the results of Chester's research. I know it involves a million adults around post-COVID anxiety in people at work increasing from previously one in five to now 30%. That very big number in the people in their 20s being at 42% experiencing anxiety. It's most likely your top performers or people who are top performers who are more likely to be suffering anxiety at work. And Kahala, it, it was that link to episode eight in season one and Melody Wilding's 
work and research around sensitive strivers. So, you know, for our listeners, if you are one of those, you recognize yourself there, that episode eight in season one around turning sensitivity into a superpower. Within this insight, the link that Chester's work brings around only 10% of workers being willing to share with their managers that they're experiencing anxiety. The reason there being this big opportunity and insight about the need to move from psychological safety and move on and increase that pathway into emotional safety and understanding the difference between the two and that psychological safety being about feeling okay to give feedback, ask questions and own mistakes at work. Whereas emotional safety is that bigger, more complex step in being able to share and answer. If you ask that question, how are you doing? Feeling safe and trusting to answer if you are experiencing anxiety and knowing and trusting that you will get support and respect and help. So that's that's my first inside area, Kahal. I had never heard of the emotional safety one before that he and you just mentioned there now, Annette. I did also think his link to perfectionism and, as you said, the sensitive striver that, uh, of course, the lovely Melody Wilding has talked about before, that perfectionists can often suffer even more from anxiety uh, than others. So, yes, I really agree with your number one takeaway, Annette. What was your number two? The second one, I suppose number two and number three about what can we do if we're experiencing anxiety at work. And so my second takeaway from Chester was around the importance of having an ally, a confidant, someone you can trust. And we talked about this in episode two. You talked with Bruce Daisley about this, this importance of having a best friend at work or a best friend or your partner, family members outside of work and sharing how you're feeling. That gives you a bigger ability to absorb stress, understand it, work through strategies for moving out of stress in those difficult situations. And then if you do have that confidant and best friend at work, then you both benefit from being better able to cope with stress in the workplace and deal with it and move on from it. And then also that building that sense of belonging. And we know that from that sense of belonging, we can all be more effective at work, which is good for us, good for our best friends at work, our colleagues and our customers and our companies. And then when we get home, our friends and and family. So that was the second takeaway. And, you know, I mentioned on the show there on the episode In a lot of big companies, they have ally networks. You could join an ally network to help people that are gay in the company and show that you're on their side. You're there for them and a support network as well. What I've seen is you just, even though you may be from a marginalized group, people that are not from that group can actually join an ally network to actually support those marginalized. Have you seen that? Because that was a big thing at Goldman Sachs. You have? Yeah, yeah? I have seen that, Kahal. And I think it's emerging in large Australian organizations, but so much more opportunity to grow that and really encourage that so that people will prioritize becoming an ally, but also recognizing for themselves that it's it's good for them as well to build those connections, find friends at work and what that will give them. They're getting the dopamine hits from all of that as well. And what was your number three in it? 
Number three was, again, another one around, okay, well, something practical that we can do um, and managing anxiety at work because there's always going to be stress around delivery time frames or whether it's a crisis or a problem or something unexpected. So the third one for me is around the practice of gratitude and, and Chester as the apostle of gratitude and his advice around how to start the day with having a mantra and then how to finish the day by reflecting on the three things you're grateful for. One of my favorite books, too many favorites, is uh, Hugh Van Kuhlenberg's uh, The Resilience Project and uh, the three practices from his research about how to build resilience are around um, guidance for gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness. And, and this is all, you know, all coming together and synthesizing into our, our better at work model. So that was my third Kahal. And I do want to say one, one or two more thoughts as well. Oh, yeah, please. For me, I've wanted to have him on for a while. Thank you to you for your connection through to Chester, through your cousin, Mark. So oh, thank yes, you so my, yeah, much my cousin, Mark, is a huge fan of Chester's and he introduced me to Chester and he's just such a lovely, interesting, warm man. I, and I just really enjoyed listening to you talk to him. He was so great. And, you know, I felt very relaxed during, during the conversation. I don't know if you picked up on that because with Chester, it was very different. It was, he's, he's a pro. He's such a pro with this mm. stuff, he put, right? He puts people at their ease. He puts you at your ease. And you can imagine him being your leader, right? He would put you at your ease. He doesn't just come on when the light goes on. He's actually a really nice man. I think some of my other takeaways were that leaders really looking out for signs of anxiety in people. People that were once passionate don't seem to have their contributing in meetings anymore. He just was making the point. It's all simple things. I remember, I don't know if he said this in the recording. I think it was beforehand. He goes, look, a lot of it is common sense stuff when it comes to reducing anxiety. And he does come back to the whole gratitude thing and how as a leader, you know, he said, remember what your parents told you. Say, please say thank you to people. Be grateful for what they're doing. Being in and saying thank you to people, showing up, listening to them. I liked how he mentioned Brené Brown and the whole difference between empathy and sympathy, going down into the hole with the person and, and actually sharing something and being vulnerable with someone when they have been vulnerable with you. I love that he follows the Buddhist philosophy that every word that passes through your mouth needs to go through three gates. Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? I've got that printed out and stuck on the door inside my pantry. <laughs> but I think it's a really good point in it. You know, like I think for anyone, as you get into this Christmas period, it can be stressful around family because, you know, we all know what it's like to be around family lots. Thinking to yourself, you know, before you say something that you might regret, thinking, is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? Anyway, I think, Annette, so incredible to listen to. His stories were great. And the vulnerability sh he showed around the co-writer's son and how he said to them that, you know, they're old fogies who don't know that what's happening in the real world is that younger people are talking about anxiety the whole time. How great that Chester felt comfortable with sharing that, but just fantastic. Yeah, and I, I love the book, The Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse, oh, yes. and especially the question of the horse of what's the bravest thing you've ever done and and the horse saying ask for help and that yes. insight that asking for help is not giving up asking for help 
is refusing to give up. I just love that. So for you guys listening, thank you. I hope you really enjoyed that episode. There was a lot to get through there. Thank you so much, Annette, for that. And uh, now it's time for our listeners question. Sarah has sent us through a message. Hi, Annette and Kahal. I recently had a bad experience with my boss. I was asked a direct question by her boss's office. I responded to the question and my boss went crazy at me. I had copied my boss into the email answer, but she was not close to the content and didn't understand the work in question. I always aim to keep her informed of work, which is high profile, and take the time to explain it to her. However, she doesn't read my emails. She's often not available. She's not experienced or interested on many, many of the occasions that I've attempted to brief her. And I end up being caught in the middle as her boss is often looking for more detailed answers and very quickly. How do I manage this as I cannot seem to win? With thanks, Sarah. What do you think? This was a really, I've seen this happen. Here's the thing. I think poor Sarah, she's in a tricky position. She's got the this technical, it sounds like, query. In summary, she's answered the query, gone back to her boss's boss, CC'd her boss, and then her boss has gone crazy and said, what the hell? Poor Sarah is you know, is is telling us that her boss isn't very close to the content. She's always trying to explain it to her, but she's stuck in this situation. I immediately went to Caroline Webb. She has a fantastic chapter in her book, How to Have a Good Day on Resolving Tensions. And even before I looked at it, I thought Sarah probably has to assume this is the first thing I would do is assume good person, bad circumstances. We need to get clear on the true facts here. Is Sarah's boss under a lot of pressure? Is something going wrong? Sarah needs to assume good person, bad circumstances so that she can go, I have to continue working for this person. So I've got to assume this is a good person. Something's gone wrong here. What can I do to, is something happening that I'm not aware of? That would be my first thoughts on it, Annette. And I think it's really getting clear on the true facts. Why? The boss is so particular about Sarah not going back, right? You know, and maybe it's Sarah having a discussion with the boss to say, look, what way would you like me to manage these going forward? If I was Sarah, I'd want to know what could I do differently in the future? I'm I'm quite an honest person. So I'd have to say to the boss, look, you know, that made me feel really bad that you got so aggressive there. That was not my intention. Can we work through it together and see how we can avoid that stress for you and me in the future? My thoughts are very similar to yours, Kahal, and I'm guessing that Sarah's manager is most likely feeling threatened and insecure. There might be some other things happening that we're not aware of, but I feel that the manager is in an awful situation where she has from Sarah's perspective, low interest and low skill and knowledge in the subject matter. And that's a really dangerous, demotivating space to be. And so I'm aligned with you, Kahal, is that I'm assuming Sarah's manager has a lot of skills to be in that particular role in the first place. And my thoughts here are, like you said, Sarah needs to have that heart-to-heart 
conversation with her manager when right at and immediately when something similar occurs so it's about the specifics of what's gone on so she can understand and seek that information on what's what's going on for her manager and also share how it made her feel and then at the same time if Sarah can work into reassure her manager about her own intention so that she builds that trust with her manager that Sarah's intentions are to look after both of them so that her manager might relax and rely on Sarah to do a good job and give the level of detail and timeliness required because this is Sarah's skill set and expertise and there's something there for Sarah to think about what in advance what qualities and strengths and skills that her manager has that Sarah appreciates and wants to learn from it sounds like Sarah's manager cares she's getting upset like that so it sounds to me most likely it's crossed wires and needing those open conversations around intention and understanding about those little changes to approach that could be made to put them both at ease so there's several strategies that you've covered and I've touched on that Sarah could try However, Kahal, if it becomes something that Sarah finds she can't turn around and this is going to become, you know, an ongoing stress that Sarah can't avoid, then it might be in a time to take Chester's advice and thinking about moving on. But it doesn't sound to me like it's irretrievable for Sarah yet. There's lots of things that she can have a go at and trying and see if they can get on a more even footing and responding to these urgent requests from the Sarah's boss's boss's office. And, you know, for you, Sarah, some good news. We actually have an episode coming up this season with Amy Gallo. Amy has a fantastic book on uh, how to deal with difficult people. Um, and it's a great episode. We've actually already recorded it. So that's coming really, really soon. The other advice I give is have a look at Caroline Webb's book, How to Have a Good Day. Chapter nine has a whole section on resolving tension. She gives some advice, play back what they said. So, you know, that's one thing. Talk about observable actions, not their attitude. Be crystal clear in your communication. Focus on solutions. I love that bit because you can help both of you stay in discovery mode if you focus as much as possible on the ideal outcome for the future. You know, so how good would that be? And also Caroline says, show appreciation. If you can stomach it, feed their psychological need for recognition. Find something specific that you can tell them you appreciate about them. I agree with you, Annette. It sounds like it's not a total situation that Sarah is about to leave. And I think with a little bit of training around how to give brain-friendly feedback, how to deal with difficult people, listen to the Amy Gallo episode coming up, maybe go back and listen to the Caroline Webb episode as well. That should help you. Thank you, Sarah, so much for sharing your story with us. And Annette, of course, thank you for helping us resolve that one. If you do have a question that you'd like us to resolve, do let us know. Get in touch via LinkedIn or on our website, betteratwork.com.au. We are really always happy to help in any way we can. And even if it's not through helping here on the show, we're happy to help offline as well. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much, Annette, for joining me as always. And of course, we'll be back very, very soon. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Annette. Thanks, Kahal. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you soon. 
Bye. Thank you for listening to Better at Work with me, Carl Quinlan. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends and rate, review or subscribe as this helps others find the podcast. For more practical tips, simple tools and ideas on how to aim for betterness, head on over to betteratwork.com.au and sign up for our newsletter. Until next time, watch out for those work jerks and keep reaching for better.